We are starting the show, though, talking about some changes when it comes to dog bylaws and dealing with aggressive and dangerous dogs, specifically in Vancouver. And Rebecca Bretter joins us now, animal lawyer with Bretter Law Corporation. Rebecca, great to have you back on the show. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Let's talk about what Vancouver is doing. You've written about this and some proposed changes coming into that city's bylaw when it deals with dogs. What is being proposed? Yeah, well, actually, there, it's no longer proposed. It, it, it is the actual bylaw as of, as of now, as of January of this year. And the Vancouver Animal control bylaws in relation to dogs haven't been changed for a long time. So it's been a long time coming. And and really what the city was trying to do, um, Pete Fry, who's a, a city councillor, was really trying hard to make some progressive changes. And some were, which I'll get to in a moment. But there were some other serious concerns I had with what city staff were proposing, so kind of in the bigger picture, what the city's trying to do and the whole intention behind these changes is that the city was trying to better manage the conditions of a dog license to match the severity of an underlying reason for an aggressive dog incident. So so in other words, if a dog um, bites, but there's really a good reason why the dog did that, and it's not because the dog is like this vicious animal, then the conditions under which that dog should be kept should match the severity of, of that incident. And Because in the past, if a dog bit, um, it automat- almost automatically someone would get a ticket, they'd have to fight it. And now, I mean, that still may be the case, but I think the city's trying to to use a bit more common sense. That was the intention behind it, to use some common sense instead of just labeling all dogs aggressive if they displayed some aggressive behavior. But I think um, there are some really unintended, serious consequences for dog owners in the city of Vancouver now because the definition of aggressive dog has changed. It used to be something along the lines of that if a dog has bitten another domestic animal or person without provocation, that person is guilty of a dog bite or if the dog has had a propensity. But now the definition of aggressive dog includes that. So if a dog has bitten another person or animal, but it also expanded, the definition is expanded now to include a dog who also displays aggressive behavior. Well, then you ask yourself, okay, well, what does aggressive behavior mean? And the bylaw actually does set out a definition for what aggressive behavior means. And essentially it says that it's any hostile attack by a dog um, on a person or other animal, uh, including pursuing a person or another animal in a hostile manner. So it's very vague. I think it's very vague. Pursuing, like what does pursuing a person or a domestic animal in a hostile manner mean? And my concern with that is, and I've seen it so many times in my own cases, where Someone alleges that, hey, that dog was trying to attack me. He was following me in a, in a very aggressive way. And that's coming from a person who, let's say, doesn't like pit bulls. So anything that, that, that a pit bull does is going to seem like aggression to that person or someone who's scared of dogs and doesn't like the, the dog coming up to them. Whereas my clients, the dog guardians, are saying something like, well, no, no, my dog was not pursuing them in, in an aggressive way. He just wanted to run up to say hi. And so there's, it's really in the eye of the beholder. 
And so what I'm worried about is that because this definition of aggressive behavior is so vague and so broad, it's going to capture some unintended consequences. And and keep in mind that someone who is ticketed in the city of Vancouver with a dog bite or a dog acting in an aggressive behavior, the minimum fine is $250 all the way up to $10,000. Now, the $10,000 is really in the more extreme cases, but the risk is there. And so it's that's one of my main concerns is that the definition of aggressive dog is so broad. But the other thing, I'll just jump in and, and say some more, is that uh, before determining whether a dog is really aggressive, and this isn't something unique to Vancouver, it's, it's something that's bugged the heck out of me for so long across this country, which is that it, it's animal control that determines whether a dog is quote-unquote aggressive. Yet animal control officers, with all due respect to what they do, they are not qualified in animal behavior, or at least not qualified enough to really determine if what happened was aggressive behavior or not. I really do it, and it's something that that I was advocating to the city. Unfortunately, they did not include this, um, or or at least not outright. We're going to see how these bylaws play out in court. But uh, uh, the opinion of a qualified animal behavior uh, behaviorist or professional is not required. So, and so that's my other concern. I really do think that before a dog is considered aggressive, that you need to have a qualified professional to actually determine whether what happened is truly aggression or not. And so just going back, though, to what you said about the new kind of definition for an aggressive dog with with aggressive behavior or any hostile attack or pursuing a person. How is that going to work, do you think, in that unless there's video or a lot of witnesses that can agree to what happened? I mean, mm-hmm. is it not going to be uh, the person said against the dog guardian said, isn't that yeah. going to be a big difference of opinion? Yeah, exactly. It's a very he said, she said type of scenario. And I think it's probably going to work out in a very similar way that it's been happening all these years where someone says, and and we really don't have video evidence in most of the cases, I would say, at least in my cases, uh, there's no video evidence. So it comes down to at trial, who does the judge or justice of the peace actually believe? Is it the person who's alleging that the dog was aggressive or is it the dog guardian who's like, no, my dog was not acting like that. And so sometimes we have experts involved in the case to assess the dog and to give an opinion on what is the likelihood that the dog was actually acting aggressive in that moment. And that's, and I think it was a part of my concern is that we're going to see a lot more of that because it really does come down to he said, she said type of scenario. Whereas before, I, I think people can agree if a dog bites, whether it's biting another dog or biting another human, um, and and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I, or this may have this may be just something that that has taken off. I, I know there's often the belief that the bite has to draw blood, but if mm-hmm. if a dog does bite, I mean that's a pretty clear indication that it at least is something that needs to be addressed. Yeah, very, I was going to say very often, but that's not necessarily true. I, I, I could say often it is that something needs to be addressed, but it's not necessarily aggressive behavior. It could be something else. Maybe the dog has some underlying health conditions or the dog was having a bad day and the person wasn't able to interpret their dog's 
mood, essentially. And I know that may sound silly to some, but dogs and other animals, well, not, uh, for that matter, are just like people when it comes to emotions. We have our good days and our bad days, and we have to be able to recognize what our own personal limits are, right? So in the same way that some dog guardians, if they realize that their dog is having a bad day, maybe don't take them out with a whole bunch of other dogs where they could snap at another dog. But that's also kind of the intention behind these new bylaws is that the the big one of the big differences here, uh, practically speaking, is that the licenses, which people are supposed to have anyway, are going to attach conditions if there is an incident that happens. And so it'll be up to animal control to set out what those conditions are. But let me just say that the good thing uh, in these bylaws, and this is something I've also been advocating for a long time, and, and I'm glad that the city accepted this part, is that once a dog is determined to be aggressive by the city, or that's what their opinion is, then a person will have a year, they have to live with it for, for a year, and then they could apply to the city to review that designation, which we didn't have before. So it's kind of like an appeal provision. I think there's some problems in there too. <laughs> like an appeal should really be up to a completely unbiased entity that has nothing to do, that had nothing to do with the original decision. Whereas here we're dealing with an appeal essentially to the same decision maker. So it's not really unbiased, but at least it's a step in the, in the right direction. I'll say that. And, and so a person who gets a notice from the city that their dog is aggressive then will have to kind of live with it for a year. I mean, there's a lot more to it. I'm generalizing here. But they will. the point is, is that the new bylaws now provide a review mechanism that someone could apply to the city and say, hey, we met, we followed the conditions, we did what the city has wanted us to do for this past year. Uh, can you remove the designation of aggressive dog now? And that and that's a good thing. So it doesn't have to follow the dog for the rest of his or her life. Do you think this will then, these even with the flaws that you've pointed out it's in the bylaw, will it stop uh, some dogs from being euthanized? I think it'll at least delay it and then hopefully ultimately uh, stop more dogs from being unnecessarily euthanized. Yeah, so the short answer is yes. I hope so. I mean, we'll see how it plays out, but I really hope that the the good intentions that the city had turned <laughs> turned into some unintended consequences, as I see in, in the way the bylaws are written now. But time will tell, I guess, how, how the courts interpret the new bylaw. And Rebecca, I'm just curious, too, something you mentioned, that when somebody is ticketed for having an aggressive dog and the tickets range anywhere from a minimum $250 to a maximum 10000 have you ever seen someone find the 10000 No. <laughs> I have not seen someone find. Well, the way it usually works, and this is within the city of Vancouver, different cities deal with these types of uh, things a bit differently. But in the city of Vancouver, people get uh, a summons to court. So it, it's almost like a traffic ticket. You have to go and you have to fight it. And uh, you're, you're charged per count. So you get, let's say, a dog off leash count. You get a dog bite attack count. And you have to fight each of those counts. And each of those counts are where the 250 to $10,000 attaches itself to. So I've seen over 10000 for the total amount, but not per count. And those are really in the more serious uh, cases where someone has like a laundry list of 
uh, of questionable behavior, to say the least, in the past. They had they turned their life around. They turned their dog around. Uh, but they still have to answer to to what happened in the past. So, yeah, 10,000, I would say 10,000 is pretty rare. But, you know, the risk is there. And now these are new bylaws. So will time will tell how, how courts interpret these new bylaws and what the fines will be. All right. So, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us and for bringing us up to date on this. Appreciate your time today. Thanks very much, Jill. Time to talk about the water, where it goes, and why other things should not be mixed in. This after a very unusual reminder, and it comes out of the city of Mission, B.C. The reminder to residents there, don't flush clothing down the toilet. And you might think, well, what happened that they had to put out that warning? It had to do with a pair of sweatpants. Yes, sweatpants. Those common sweatpants you might see on your floor. Well, somebody somehow flushed a pair of sweatpants down the drain and that caused a major clog in a city sewer. That led to the warning. That also led to why we're talking about this today. Joining me for uh, this conversation, we have two guests. Uh, Carol Nichols, communications specialist at Metro Vancouver. She works on the Unflushables campaign. Carol, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, it's a, a very timely topic given what's happened in Mission, but also a good reminder. We are also uh, joined by Donna Zhang, who is a project manager with Liquid Waste at Metro Vancouver. Donna, thank you so much for being here as well. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for having us. Well, I'm so glad you were both uh, available to talk about this. Thankfully, we don't see or hear about sweatpants being flushed down the toilet too often. Uh, But Carol, I wanted to start with you. When we're talking about this, what are some of perhaps the common items that people think are okay to flush and should never be flushed? Sure. So uh, kind of a good rule to follow, we always tell people, is to only flush pee, poo, and toilet paper. Hopefully that's okay to say on the radio. It is. some of the specific things that we see that sort of are the top offenders in our system um, are disposable wipes. Even if they're labeled unflushable, they still cause major issues. Um, paper towels, dental floss, tampon and applicators, condoms and hair. Those are sort of the, the kind of the top ones that we see that uh, cause us problems. We also don't want people flushing medications um, for a different reason um, because they're hard to fully remove when we treat wastewater. And so some of them stay in the wastewater and they can end up in our ocean and that can have negative impacts for fish and other wildlife. All right. Uh, that's a, it's a pretty good list. And, and I think people maybe will hear that list and think, perhaps we've been uh, offenders of some of those things in the past. Um, what can they do? And I don't know if, Donna, you're better to answer this one. But if, if those things do find their way into the sewer system, down the toilet, what, what is the negative impact of that? I think that's a good question for Dana. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So when we when we see these um, items enter into our sewer system, uh, they can cause clogs and backups and overflows. Um, so we, we see a lot of these impacts in our sewers and our wastewater treatment plants, uh, but this can also cause overflows in people's homes. So not only is this gross to deal with, but it's also really costly to repair for both residents and uh, us as uh, the municipalities in Metro Vancouver. 
All right. So I will fully admit, I'll, I'll do a confession right here I, on that list. So I have been guilty of flushing paper towel down the toilet, whether it's cleaning up something. And, and in my mind, I know that in the past I have, I have um, in my mind made it seem okay because it's uh, whether I'm cleaning something up and this, the paper towel is completely saturated. So it feels like it would just disintegrate and it would be okay. But so what, what is the, the issue then with paper towel specifically? Uh, I guess I can jump in and Dana can jump in too. Um, I think the issue with all of these items is that they either don't break down at all in the system or they don't break down as quickly as we need them to. You know, you'll notice toilet paper falls apart almost instantly. Paper towels are just a lot stronger than you think. So you, depending on where you live in the system in our region, you may be quite close to a pumping station or a wastewater treatment plant, and those items will not have broken down by the time they get to the next stage that they need to get to. And that's where we start to see uh, clogs and some of the other impacts that Dana was talking about. Okay, that makes yeah. sense. Dana, did you want to add to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even things like um, tissue paper, like, you know, your Kleenex, uh, you may think that that's quite similar to toilet paper and that can be flushed. But uh, tests have shown that those these products don't disintegrate like toilet paper does. And um, they can, uh, in fact, cause clogs in, um, in, in our pipes. All right. And Dana, can you talk a little bit as well? Again, we're talking about this today because of this bizarre story out of Mission where somehow somebody was able to flush sweatpants down the toilet. Um, we, we heard that list. Have there been other unusual items that have been found where they should not be? Yeah, for sure. Our sewers and treatment plant staff, they have a ton of stories of finding weird things that accidentally or not so accidentally get flushed. Um, I can say that uh, for some examples, once an engagement ring was found at one of our treatment plants, um, our staff see things like money and poker chips sometimes. And uh, I I like this one. Um, Around Halloween, our plant staff see candy and candy wrappers show up, you know, just in that small time frame. (laughs) Maybe some parents trying to get the candy away when their their kids have had too much. That's right. (laughs) Not the way to do it. Um, and Carol, maybe I'll go back to you and, and if you can address this. Uh, I, I'm guessing that t- through the pandemic, uh, we've certainly seen more masks and things on the ground. I'm guessing you've probably seen more of these uh, that have unfortunately gotten into the, the sewer system as well. But when we talk about things like medication and those other things that, that people are disposing of, what should people do with them instead? Yeah, it kind of depends on the item itself. They all sort of go in different directions, but I'll just maybe hit some of the key ones. So for medications, if you have any old or unused pills, there's a bunch of other things you can return as well, you can take those back to a pharmacy where they'll be disposed of safely. Almost everything else, particularly wipes, need to go in the garbage. Um, If you have a paper towel and it doesn't have any cleaning product on it, you can put that in your green bin. If you have small amounts of hair, that can also go in your green bin. I know it's sometimes hard to keep track of all this stuff, but we have a website, unflushables.ca, if you want more information on what goes where. All right. And, and Dana, I'll go back to you as well. And I'm, I'm recalling, I guess it was a few years ago now, but and it may, there may have been something similar here, but I, I think it was London and they were dealing with the giant fat blob because people had been uh, putting bacon grease and other cooking grease and such down their drain, which we found out was a big no-no. Uh, what happens when you find these things or these things like sweatpants or, or things clog those sewer lines? What is it like then when crews have to deal with that? 
Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So our sewer crews, we have a real-time monitoring system in place to detect when there's issues with our pumps and other sewer equipment. And uh, so when they get those calls, they go out to site, and more often than not, these are caused by clogs due to unflushable products that, like you said, you know, can can get mixed up with fats, oil, and greases in our system um, to create these unmovable fat burps. Uh, so from there, um, the crews, uh, it, it's quite a manual process of uh, pulling out the, pulling the equipment out of service, whether or not if it's a pump, for example, and then declogging that pump um, and, and its impellers by hand. And then anything that somehow makes it through the sewer network to our treatment plants, um, we do have infrastructure in place to screen out any, any um, solids at the plant headworks. All right, Fatberg. You're right. That was the phrase that I was I was trying to remember. That was that was it. Yes, um, Carol. You mentioned hair as well, and I would imagine it might be easy for people. You uh, kind of clean out your hairbrush, or you don't really think about it. Maybe you're uh, and putting hair down the drain. But and and I'm not sure if Carol or Donna is best to talk about this. But but why is that an issue? Uh, I think for similar reasons to, to others. I mean, hair is one of the products I think people are most surprised that they can't flush. Um, and I think, again, hair is very stringy. It doesn't break down as quickly as you think. Uh, so it is not breaking down and it's getting tangled up with other things and binding with other things in the system. Dana, there's maybe more stuff you could add there. Yeah, no, Carol, you hit it on the, you know, you hit the nail on the head there. Um the, it's, it's a compounding issue. We, when you have hair that's stringy, it can tie up other products and bind with fat fill and greases and, you know, all of these things together. Even though individually they seem like quite small and they don't have that much of an impact, um, over time things get built up in the sewer network and that's how, that's how we have backup. All right. And just just going back to uh, and all of the things that you mentioned on the list, you can see how they could end up in the system because they'd be easy enough to to throw in the toilet. Things like cotton balls, dental floss, as you mentioned, hair, medications. So so we know those are on the list, but I'm still kind of shocked that in mission, somebody was able to get a pair of sweatpants. It just seems like such a big item to flush down the toilet. Yes, definitely. I think, um, yeah, it's incredible what people, what we find and what people manage to flush. Um, I know that uh, in some of our pump stations, we see, uh, you know, wood debris, two by fours sometimes that that end up down drains, um, which are are probably, you know, accidentally um, getting into the system. Well, it's a very good reminder and a refresher on what to flush, what not to flush. Thanks to both of you so much for taking the time and for coming on the show today. Appreciate it. Great. Thanks very much. Thank you. We have been talking about expiry dates, best before dates, and this came after a lot of response to the story yesterday about the province spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to dispose of expired hand sanitizer. A lot of people writing in and commenting on that story about how an alcohol-based product could expire. What does that actually mean? So that got us thinking about other expiry dates and best before dates. And here to talk more about that is Denise Phillips, policy coordinator with the National Zero Waste Council. Denise, thanks so much for being with us. 
Thanks for having me, Joe. Uh, a few people wrote in yesterday saying, you know what, these are just suggestions. I don't pay much attention or put much faith in expiry dates. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, a recent report that came out in the summer indicated that, in fact, about a third of people do pay attention to those best before dates. Uh, and another third do not want them removed. What we do know is that people do pay attention to them. <clears throat> they misunderstand those dates. People believe that the best before date is more like an expiry date. They believe that food is unhealthy, unsafe to eat once it's past those dates. What we need to be clear about is that a best before date is just a peak freshness date. It just means that that is the date at which that food item tastes the best, is the freshest. You can eat food, you can consume food past its best before date, uh, and it's still completely fine to eat for the most part. Uh, I do suggest that people really do things like trust your nose, always make sure you give it a sniff. I say that it's often a more reliable way of understanding whether that food is, is good to eat or safe to eat than a best before date. Right. So, and something like, uh, I was thinking about that, like a, a bag of salad, which can go very quickly. You would know if it's past its prime or still edible, but might not be as easy, uh, say, as a, a jar of jam that might have a date on it. Uh, correct. Though often things like jam can discolor, etc. I think the other thing to know about the best before date is that really... It's only supposed to be put on food. There's it only Food that is um, uh, only shelf-stable for up to 90 days, uh, that's the food that must have a best-before date. There are foods where, that are shelf-stable. In other words, they're fine to eat. They're, they're, you know, they're still going to be fresh. Think about those bags of chips that are, that are still great at month four and even <laughs> month five when you don't open them, right? Um, they, will, they will sometimes have a best-before date on. They're not required to but they often do have it. Um, and again, those, I think you, once you open those bags of chips, you'll understand whether it's actually good to eat or not. So there's a certain level of arbitrariness that comes with those best before dates, what they're applied on, um, whether you the degree to which you trust them, and again, making sure that consumers are aware of, the, of what that best before date means, which again just means peak freshness. Right. Okay. That makes sense. That's an interesting one too, because things like that, the bag of chips or things that if you don't open them, um, or even things like uh, almond milk or oat milk that's in the the Tetra pack, if you don't open them, oftentimes the best before date is, you know, it can be more than a year away. That's correct. So best before dates are are really only good um, on unopened food products. Once once a food product has been opened, Game's over for that best before date. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, what about, so, and again, we were talking about this today because of the response to the story about sanitizer, and that did get a lot of, of people curious about something like that. And I kind of took a look around the sanitizer that we have in the office, uh, found that most of it is expired. The one that is sitting in front of me, uh, it's either uh, May 12th, 2022, or December 5th. I'm not sure which, but it's definitely 2022. And that, that got that conversation going because here we're talking about an alcohol-based product. Is it different or, or those dates, are they tied to the, the ingredients? 
they would be tied to the ingredients. I'm not going to speak to your hand sanitizer, uh, but because my background is really around food. Um, so best before dates are typically um, uh, applied um, by manufacturers or, or retailers that are determining what, what, whether that food item is, is shelf-stable for 90 days or less. Um, sometimes that retailer can really range from your Starbucks barista to, you know, the head of your meat department at a local uh, superstore. So who that, who that retailer is um, can really vary, and there's not enough guidance around, uh, around who, that, who can really apply a best before date, or even there's really not a lot of guidance around what constitutes something being shelf-stable for 90 days or less. And this is this lack of clarity is something that the National Zero Waste Council is asking the Government of Canada to rectify. Uh, we do have a proposal in front of them now to um, change the wording around best before dates, either remove, uh, remove that wording altogether, or replace it with something that's clear. I like to say, you know, we, we like to, yeah, just be clear about what it is. So it is a peak freshness date. So we would have peak freshness and we would have the date. And that feels like um, that is a date that could be applied by many people without a lot of ramifications or impact. But when we have something that says best before and it's applied by quite a range of retailers, there's no guidance for who can apply it or, or what constitutes 90 days or less, um, what happens is we have a lot of food items that are given best before dates. Consumers uh, often will not eat a food item past its, its best before date, and then they throw it out. Right. The reason that the National Zero Waste Council is particularly worried about the food element is that uh, almost half of the food that Canada produces is not eaten. We, we waste almost half of our food, uh, which comes with a $49 billion price tag. So food waste is a big issue. This is why we're involved uh, and interested in making changes to those best before dates. And so when we talk, though, of moving from the best before date to, and to, to kind of the types of foods that have those and the expiration date, that's a much more specific food group, isn't it? Or, or the groups that, that have that. And that does mean don't eat this, don't consume this past the date. Correct. So what we'll, you'll see on a food item is either a best before date, which refers to peak freshness or quality, an expiration date. An expiry date is really only for a select group of foods, so baby formula, infant formula, um, nutritional substitutes, so people that you know are ill and they can only consume like a liquid and they need so many calories a day. Um, that has an expiry date, um, and that has health ramifications because people, um, if, once it is past its expiry date, it may not provide the calories that that individual needs. So those expiry dates are different, and they do need to be paid attention to. And then you might also see something that says sell by or package by labels. Um, and these labels, they, they, they may be helpful, but again, they also do not indicate quality or safety um, a packaging date packaged on is kind, of, is kind of similar to a best before date, but it's typically used um, on foods that are packaged at a retail store, not just a point of processing, point of processing. Um, and again, with a shelf life of, of 90 days or less. Right. And I, I'm just trying to, I, I would think you would see those, don't you, on things like fish or meat, say you're at the grocery store. Don't those often have stickers on them that they that say which day they were packaged on? Correct. Yeah. yeah. I think for consumers, the other thing to, to um, think about when they see a best before date or a packaging date, you know, ideally to prolong the shelf life of that item, throw it in the freezer. It's super simple. 
It means that you're not going to throw it away. And as long as you throw it in the freezer before or on that, that best before date, you can almost guarantee that you're going you're gonna to extend the shelf life of that food. And, and for how long, though, and that, that raises me, there's a, a turkey that has been in our office freezer. It has an expiry date that's in 2020. Is that, I mean, it's, it's rock solid. It's frozen. It's been frozen the entire time. Is that still something that could be consumed? So I, I'm going to suggest that it's likely that you can consume it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to guarantee I haven't seen your turkey. Um, but I, again, with most things like that, I would say let it thaw. And give it a sniff. You'll know if your poultry is off. You'll know if your seafood is off. It's really clear. You want to look for discoloration and you want to look for changes in, in odor and particularly odor that's, that's really not good. You know, you kind of flinch when you smell it. Right. I would not eat something like that. No, and I, I, nobody's jumping on it. And I'm, I have a feeling it's going to be there three years from now as well. But that, that just made me think of it because it's been sitting there for quite some time. Um, do you think that are, are we getting more knowledgeable about this and looking at the difference between best before dates and expiration dates? And, and in doing so, is that how do you think we're going to cut down on this amount of waste? I think the discussion has been happening for quite a long time. I would say that we still need more consumer education on it. And again, not just consumers. It's also retailers and manufacturers uh, because uh, people are, are throwing out food at those locations when they reach their best before dates as well. You'll, and you'll see retail stores pulling food off their shelves once they hit a best before date, when in fact they're actually quite sellable food items. So the waste happens at different points in the supply chain, not just with consumers. We do still need more education around it. And I think we need to be smarter around the strategies that we use to prolong the shelf life of our food. For consumers, we talk about make plan it out. Plan your meals, your meals for the week. Uh, keep it fresh. And so store it in the right place in your, in your fridge and then freeze it. We really like people freezing their food. Um, and then use it up. So being creative around um, how you use food that you feel like maybe is, is uh, moving away from its peak freshness. You know, throw it in different kinds of ingredients um, uh, or, you know, multi-ingredient, multi-ingredient meals, for example, soups, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know if that entirely answers your question, but I think we still need to, to raise awareness to the to the issue. And I think that consumers, you know, planning planning out their meals, keeping it fresh and using it up is going to be um, a likely strategy. All right. Well, it's, waste. it's a definitely a, a, a good reminder. And thank you so much, Denise. Thanks for coming on the show uh, today and talking about this. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having us. Take care. It was a unanimous decision at Victoria City Council last night, and this was to a proposal to build a floating sauna in the Inner Harbour. It was a lengthy public hearing. One resident referred to it as a monstrosity, but it is going ahead. It is going to be a converted barge, and again, it will include a sauna, a variety of hot and cold pools, the small sauna, and even some spots for special events. So joining us to talk more about what this is going to look like and what it will do for the harbour is Ian Robertson, Greater Victoria Harbour Authority CEO. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. This seems like a a very interesting idea. Tell me about uh, your thoughts on this idea of the floating sauna. Well, I think it's an excellent idea. Uh, I guess this goes back maybe about a year and a half, Jill. We we wanted to uh, diversify and kind of animate the harbour, so we sent out 
requests for proposals and the proponent responded and uh, and with the idea of a floating spa and I must say it intrigued all of us and we we continued with the conversations and and here we are and I must say I've been very impressed with the proponent and uh, and attention to detail and listening to the community and I think it's a, I think it's a, a real win for the inner harbor here in Victoria. And so this is going to be on, again, a converted barge that's going to be made into this sauna. I think from what I read, it's about 44 metres long and it's going to have, again, those pools and things. What do you think as far as as an addition to the harbour aesthetically looking at it? I, I know the one resident called it a monstrosity, but how do you think it's going to add to uh, kind of the aesthetics of the uh, harbour? Well, you know, appearance for everybody is subjective, and I respect that individual's opinion, but we've taken great care to work with the proponent to make sure that it fits in with the harbour. Uh, you know, it's under under construction now at our facility at Ogden Point. It's about maybe uh, 40% completed, and there's ideas to, you know, soften the appearance with kind of with wood grain and, and climbing vines, and uh, I think it's going to fit in well with the harbour. You know, that part of the particular harbor during this time of year through the winter is is really not that busy. So I think this is going to add some vibrancy and some life to that part of the harbor because this operation will run uh, all year round. And do you look at it and think of it more as a tourist attraction or something for residents? I think a little bit of both, Joe. Uh, it's, uh, it's positioned uh, right in the inner harbor and I hear from many people that the Inner Harbour of Victoria is one of the most spectacular harbours in the world, and I think it's going to complement it. I think it's going to be something that will be enjoyed uh, by residents and visitors. Uh, it's in a uh, prime tourist area, but again, I think the residents of Victoria are looking for something new and innovative and a place to go. Uh, so I think it'll be a hit with both residents and tourists. I understand as well as anything like this does uh, when we're talking about something a little different and an addition like this. Uh, was there rezoning that was needed as far as the rules when boats are either tied to the dock or not tied to the dock and, and whether or not visitors can be on board and what activities can be taking place? Yeah, there's a certain uh, process uh, that needs to go through from a city perspective in terms of uh, development permit. And so last night at the council meeting, uh, this was following that process. And, uh, you know, I think uh, there was good questions asked by members of council and uh, staff were well prepared and the proponent was well prepared. And I'm, I'm, I'm elated that, uh, that it was approved unanimously by council to move, a, move ahead to the next step. Do you think this will open the door to other similar projects? I hope so. I hope it demonstrates that, uh, you know, that uh, we're open to change here in Victoria, although I think some people uh, don't like the word change. But I think it sends a signal that we're open. We're open for business. We're open to new ideas and anything that can add uh, vibrancy to the to the inner harbor. I mean, for us as an organization, you know, we're always looking for ways to diversify beyond cruise, which represents a significant part of our revenue. So ideas like this, businesses like this, we welcome. Uh, we've thought through it very well. We've followed a, a good process, and I'm glad the city process is involved, and, uh, and it's, it's moving along quite well. So, yeah, I hope it does, Joe. I hope it does open up the doors for other opportunities.
And again, going back to uh, the, the opposition, I understand the person who uh, called it the monstrosity. It wasn't so much the idea of having a floating spa or a floating sauna, but uh, this person said they were appalled at the aesthetics of it, that they didn't like the design of the barge and the way it was going to look. What are your thoughts on kind of the aesthetics? And, and did, did, was that, did, did the, the proponent of this get that right? I think they've got it right. And I know from working with the proponents that, you know, they're going to be open to making tweaks uh, as we move along. And so uh, I, I, I think that, you know, they will continue to be open. We'll continue to work with the proponent. I think I've seen the final renditions of what it's going to look like. And I think once it's completed, it's going to look great. You know, I just want to make a, quali- a, a clarification on the rezoning. The reason why it had to go to a city rezoning was because it's not coming and going like normal normal vessels would be. This is going to be stationary uh, in the harbour. So that's why a city process was involved. But again, I think it allowed allowed council uh, and the public to be engaged and ask these kinds of questions. Right. And, and uh, interesting too, when you you said also that, that this could potentially open the door to other types of businesses. I mean, do you see a scenario where there might be floating restaurants or other types of businesses that will be on the water? Yeah, I hope so. Uh, in our in our three-year business plan, uh, we do have a, a strategic objective of completing an inner, inner harbor master plan, which would kind of lay out what we see the inner harbor looking like. Uh, we'll certainly work with all of the stakeholders involved, mainly the city. But yes, I do think it could open up the door for more activity, more vibrancy on the harbor. There's not a lot going on right right at the waterfront, so I think this will really add to that. And so we're looking forward to embarking upon that master plan, which could include more restaurants and and businesses. And how much is that needed, do you think, as far as if we look at what Victoria has been through with the pandemic and the lack of cruise ships for that period of time and and just basic downturn because of the pandemic in general? Well, overall, I think 2022 is a good rebound year. I think uh, talking to my colleague over Destination Greater Victoria, the hotels were full uh, businesses uh, were, were going, were doing well. I know we saw a strong recovery on the cruise business at our other properties at Fisherman's Wharf. Uh, busy, very, very busy. Operators reporting near record uh, record months, and our inner harbor marinas have been full. So I think that uh, yes, we did see a downturn, but we saw a strong recovery, and I know that we're looking for even more more of a stronger recovery as we head into 2023 and 2024. All right. Well, it is definitely an interesting addition to the Inner Harbor. Ian Robertson, we'll leave it there, but thank you so much. Thank you, Jill. A pleasure. Uh, Thanks, and thanks for having me.